0: Hello,
1: everyone. I'm Joan Kerr, and this is World Canvas from International Programs. Glad to have you with us. We're coming to you from the University Capital Center in downtown Iowa City, room 2780, if you'd like to stop by. And I'll begin by thanking our partners UITV, the University of Iowa Pentecrest Museums, KRUI FM, and Information Technology Services. This program is being recorded for statewide television and radio distribution over UITV, Iowa Public Radio, and KRUI FM. Our topic tonight is Starving for Water, the Global Water Crisis and its Impact on Food and Health. We have an amazing group of guests with us this evening who will consider from multiple vantage points water and its relationship to the environment, global health, development, and the rights of individuals and communities. In the words of UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, more people die from unsafe water than from all forms of violence, including war. These deaths are an affront to our common humanity and undermine the efforts of many countries to achieve their development potential. According to the U.S. Agency for International Development website, water covers almost three quarters of the Earth's surface, yet nearly one billion people in the world do not have access to safe water. In just 20 years, the world's demand for fresh water will outstrip supply by 40 percent. Those without safe water and sanitation are likely to be poor, hungry, and malnourished. Each day, thousands of people, mostly children under five, die from preventable diarrheal diseases. The increasing scarcity of safe water, combined with rapid worldwide population growth and environmental degradation, is also contributing to biodiversity loss and food insecurity. That's what our program's about tonight, and we hope to be able to not only illuminate some of the water challenges to people and the planet, but to offer some solutions. I mentioned the planet and people, but what about the animal world? Obviously, animals need a healthy planet to survive, and we're going to start this evening's program with a collection of animal songs, poems by Marvin Bell, set to music by David Gomper, Stephen Swanson's our baritone. Please welcome our guests.
2: How many we were, American buffalo. And all, how many we were So very many, too many to count, stampeded to the buffalo jump be your heavy coats. We were the meat, we were the leather, we were the sinew for bows, we were the grease, we made the dung for your fires, we were the hooves turned into glue. last of the marrow in hard times too. We wallowed to groom. We huddled in hurts. We thundered and we frightened the birds. We fought off the wolves and the grizzlies. We ran through the loops away from and thundering. We gave our hides to shelter, we were too good to you, we gave you what to eat. In the storybooks we stood until we were hollow bodies and brittle bones. Then we collapsed from within. Look for a kind at the top of the medicine wheel. Once we had a future that is not the future we have. Still we have a past that will remain a past. We jumped our heavy bodies over the cliffs. have learned not. be of life and death. We gave you a wing bone that bore five holes for your breath. Oh, if you would sing of life, let it be of life and death. Of buffalo and of stork and peacock. We who dine on raw leftovers, we are fit to make amuse. I will. to the white to see me. I am the loneliness of a polar bear as the ice melts beneath me. I am the far beauty In an aviator's eyes, but countryside. The spirit of your forefathers is in me, walking alone in the unframed cold. bit seen but in the main this unseen me i have not seen the beauty that you see i have not seen your love or care of me if ever you truly see me you will draw me even larger. I patrol the very top of a dying planet. I am not eternal, I am dying because I am not you, because I am me. dead leg, the granddaddy. I am the corked thigh, does it hurt? Oh, horse that excels in warfare, I am not thee. O oh, peaceful beasts of burden, I am not thee, not thee. I trot inside your quadriceps I snort, you moan, I canter up and down, oh, I prance when you wince. I am an animal too, because I am you, do you have feet? me. You must have feelings for me. Because I am you, because I am you too. Because I am you, I am you too. I am an animal too. Because I am you. I am the whole sense of your flesh. Can you feel my untrod hoofs? I can feel your hand calming me. Oh, hear me, whinny and nay. Shall I live inside you all day? Am I not real if I feel what you feel. You have your sawhorses, your thoroughbreds. Why then are there sawhorses? Why are there gift horses? If not to enlarge the bestiary, confess that you gave birth to me. I am a tiny piece of your bad luck, I am alive within you.
1: So, uh, we're going to bring uh, Stephen Swanson over here to talk for a second. Thank you, David Gomper. David Gomper composed all the music to go along with uh, Marvin Bell's poems there. So, hi. I don't know if we need to adjust that mic or not. But, um, so, Stephen, thank you very much for singing these songs. And, thank you. I and should have announced the names before I sang them. Yeah. I'm yeah.
3: sorry. Well, it's too late now. Uh, the first one was called American Buffalo, which you probably got. The second is The Vulture. The third is The Polar Bear. And the fourth is the only kind of non-animal, which is the Charlie horse, (laughs) uh, which I hoped you'd get the idea of trotting around inside your quadricep and things like that. If I got my diction out good enough, you probably did.
4: Yeah,
1: no, 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 they were great. And actually, you had—I had told you at just a casual gathering we were at some time ago that there was a program coming up on this whole um, notion of water uh, challenges around the world, the environment, and so on. You said, "Oh, you know, some of the work we've recently done really speaks Mm -hmm. to that because." It's all about animals well, in the natural world.
3: Exactly, and for me, the uh, the one that fit obviously into this was the polar bear, mm-hmm. and the idea of the melting ice caps and the and this great animal that's become kind of the symbol of our of our major problems right now with global warming, and uh, I just love the way David captured that text. And first of all, Marvin wrote a marvelous text, but you can hear the ice melting in the background, yeah. it drip, 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 drip for the water, yeah. and uh, yeah. it's just it's just a terrific setting, and. Uh, the whole idea, uh, this actually came off of a, of a larger recital that involved uh, French work and German work and and some cabaret songs, that uh, basically the, we're going back to the whole idea of of how man relates to animals is really kind of a picture of how man relates to man. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we start with the things like the eradication of the buffalo and uh And even going through the the whole circle of life thing with the vulture, the idea that the vulture is not, you know, for some reason we have this image of this, of this terrible, frightening thing. And he says, "No, I'm not there. I'm there to help the circle complete." And uh, it's it's interesting that Marvin wrote some of his most beautiful texts, and David wrote this exquisite setting for it for uh, an animal that uh, really pretty much scares us. (laughs) And uh, the idea is to get back farther into nature to realize where we really do fit in this thing, mm-hmm. that we're just one big part of the whole creation, and we do not get to stand up aside from this and just do what we want with it, because what if we watch what happens to the animals as we do what we want with it is really the canary in the mm-hmm. mine shaft, and uh, we need to take serious notice of what's going on. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you for starting off our program so beautifully. Thank you, Steven Swanson. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I'd like to invite our next guests up now, and uh, we're going to do some conversation in this next segment about um, Iowa's water resources, both uh, the rich resources we have, and also the challenges we have to water and to to our soils and whatnot. And Bob Libra is the state geologist, state of Iowa, and he has joined us this afternoon to uh, share some of his insights after years and years of working on water and land issues here in Iowa. Um, Give us a little primer on where we stand here in Iowa.
4: A little primer. I I think maybe the best way to start is to uh, uh, think of our water in the different kinds of sources we have. If uh, most people are, are most familiar with water that they can see, it's out on the land surface. So we're here just up the hill from the Iowa River. Um, we have rivers and lakes and reservoirs and wetlands, they're fed by rain. The water does its run downhill thing, Mm -hmm. feeds them, keeps them running. We also have sources of water that are underground. So the rain falls and percolates down there. You don't get to see that one, but it's going on all the time. Mm -hmm. And that water slowly makes its way, kind of percolates along, and it runs downhill because water really likes to do that. And it's heading towards those rivers and lakes. Um, so if it hasn't rained for a long time, the reason the Iowa River still has water in it is because of that underground water feeding to it. And that's what kind of happens near the surface. Okay? And if we go deep down in the ground, we have um, groundwater sources there too. We call them aquifers. They can be down sometimes a few thousand feet they 're not fed by modern rain it 's old water, some people call it fossil water, some people call it paleo water it's probably thousands, tens of thousands of years old, some places probably even older and that water is really kind of cut off from everything we do at the surface that's a good news and a bad news thing it 's not replenished, but it's kind of isolated and safe
5: mm-hmm.
4: so that's that 's kind of the 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 the, the pieces we deal with mm-hmm. and then w- when we look at issues of water or, or how how the water in the state is doing um, you can kind of come at it from two sides you know how much do we have and how good is it you know, the quantity or quality of the water and um, we tend to think of Iowa most of the time as a pretty water rich state pretty blessed with water in the last couple of years, we've been maybe a little overblessed with water, at least for short periods of time, and um, that uh, uh, relates back to that, uh, the polar bears and the melting ice. So we've got, we've got yeah. funny things going on, It are becoming one of the main challenges we're, we're looking at into the future. Um, on the quantity end, yeah, the, 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 the northeast, roughly half of the state, if you took a line from the northwest corner down to the southeast corner. The northeast half is fairly well off with regards to water. Um, there are – watersheds are large, <clears throat> they capture water over a big area, and there's plentiful aquifers down below, and it all works pretty well. The southwest half of the state, not so much. Yeah, the, the watersheds are small, the streams don't carry a lot of water, the aquifers are not very productive, the natural quality is very poor and uh, that actually goes uh, a long way to explain why the population in that part of the state is much lower. Settlement there, mm-hmm. uh, Euro-American settlement there was much more difficult because there was not easy access to water. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the, where we sit on it. And, and from the quality end, um, those shallow resources, the streams and the shallow groundwater, Uh, Again, the good news is they get replenished, recharged every time it rains or the snow melts. Uh, The bad news is they bring everything with them that is taking place on the land surface. Meaning
1: agricultural runoff.
4: Agricultural runoff, uh, waste disposal, septic systems, the things we put in pits, ponds, and lagoons. Yeah, all all the byproducts of society. Um, we, we count on the, the, the earth is either as a filter to keep it out of the groundwater or we treat it to some extent and we discharge it into streams. Mm -hmm. And so those shallow sources are impacted by what we do. Yeah.
6: Well,
1: we had an earlier conversation about this—the what we do part of it. Um, speaking for a second about industry, if uh, generally speaking, I think we think about economic development here in Iowa. We want more industry to come into the state. We want more people to have jobs. But there are serious environmental issues to to address before somebody sets up a big uh, a big industrial plants somewhere.
4: Yeah, yeah. There's a, a couple of things involved on the, on the water end. And one is, how much do you need? What quality does it have to be? Um, and the other end is, w- what do you do with it when you're done? Because all that water is never completely consumed or used mm-hmm. up. Uh, there's wastewater involved. Um, the, the 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 amounts of water we have, again, if you're in the, that northeast part of the state, it's not too bad. Mm-hmm. Um, Water in Iowa, actually, it's kind of interesting. Water is a state-controlled issue. Uh, So all the rules about water use are state-based. So there's 50 sets across the country. Um, In Iowa, we don't have it like many of the Western states do, uh, where they have a system called water rights. Uh, In Iowa, if you own property, you don't own the water under it. We all do, okay? It's, It's considered the wealth of the people of the state. And it's to be used for um, uh, maximum beneficial use without being wasteful, which is kind of one of these. You know? <laughs> who, who decides? Well, actually, there's an office within DNR that, that allocates water and um, tries to do so in a manner so that it will not interrupt other users, uh, tries to do so so that in those, those shallow sources, when uh, the rain stops, and the drought comes along, you haven't overallocated the water, and there's enough to go around. And with the deep sources, you don't have to worry about drought, but um, that water is not being replenished. And when you yank it out, it's very, very slow to come back. So those are those are kinds of the things we look at from that end. When they want to get rid of the water, there are some fairly straightforward federal regulations saying thou shalt not discharge more than these these kinds of concentrations of this that and the other into these receiving water bodies those may be too strict from some people's point of view too lax from others but but at least there is there are some standards in place there
1: we sort of briefly talked about uh, you know climate change but there's climate and there's weather and um, could you make, is, there, is it important to make a distinction between the two,
4: um, in terms of looking at sort of long-term issues I, here in the I, I was at a, a conference on climate change, and, and it was kind of interesting because that was a, the question some of the non-technical people mm-hmm. were asking the, the climate scientists. They're going, I'm confused when you guys talk about this. Yes. What is it? And, And um, I shouldn't say this in this audience. It was a bunch of university professor types. So they were giving these long, drawn-out explanations. And finally, this gal got up and said, look, think baseball, Okay, Uh, Climate is your batting average. Weather is what you do this time at the plate, Okay, So climate is what you can expect. Weather is what you get. And I I like that better than the the other descriptions I was hearing. Climate change will affect Iowa directly in in a couple of ways from from the water end. Um, Obviously, first of all, wetter or drier, and that's gonna impact those shallow resources, the shallow groundwater, the streams. Um, If it gets wetter, buy more sandbags. If it gets drier, then um, we have to look at how we have to do that. Um, Those deep sources aren't stressed by drought, and they're not going to be bothered by it. But if we become more dependent on them, then their operational lifespan just keeps decreasing because we're, we're mining that water faster and faster. On the quality end, the, the, the largest water quality problems we have in state really relate to what most of the state is used for. And if you say the word Iowa to most of the world, you see a farm, and, and that's what uh, 90% of our land is agricultural. Um, about two thirds of it is in row crop production, corn and soybeans. That land receives every year lots of fertilizers, uh, the manure from uh, the, the hogs that outnumber us six to one in, in Iowa, uh, four or five million uh, dairy and beef cows, loads and loads of chickens. This is good fertilizer, it's fine, it's kind of, that's really kind of the, the, the roots of organic farming, mm-hmm. but we've got a lot of it. Yeah. We've got a lot of it. <laughs> and so a wetter climate, the wetter it is, the more sediment and bacteria and nutrients flush off the land or flush into the ground. Really wet weather is really bad water quality in mm-hmm. Iowa. Mm-hmm. Really dry weather, we look a lot better.
1: What What is the situation um, for Iowa, sitting in the midst of all the states that surround us? Do we have water issues that, that are regulation issues between our state and, and other states? Not just a matter of heavy snowfall in Minnesota, and we get the... Get the, get the we get their water eventually,
4: yeah. yes. Um, There hasn't been a lot of that. Um, Again, and and some of that is because we, and particularly the states to the north and and north, south, and and, uh, east of us are also relatively water rich. (laughs) So we don't have water wars going with them. Um, Occasionally little, you know, little border skirmishes, but but that's about it. Um, The biggest ones we have with other states are uh, likely relates to the, say, quality of water issues on the Mississippi side and quantity over on the Missouri side because that does go up into dry states. Mm-hmm. And if, uh, I- if one of the upstream states wants to touch water, the downstream states are there and they're all lawyered up real fast and yeah. say, you don't, you don't get to do that. Mm-hmm. Iowa's pretty much kind of kept their hands off it. We shouldn't be. We should. We should be paying more attention to that.
1: Mm-hmm. What do you see as the biggest challenge for Iowa as we, you know, look at the next 20, 50
4: years? I think the biggest challenges are, well, they're twofold. Number number one, um, the roots of our our uh, water quality problems really boil down to what we use the land for, and that's agriculture. Mm-hmm. And we have a, a world with a growing population and a growing food demands. And uh, we're now looking at uh, what we grow on the land is also becoming fuel. And that puts more and more stress on the, um, on the, on the soil resources and will impact that water quality end of things. Um, and, the, and the other one is, is the whole uh, uh, specter of climate change. Uh, the, the folks who do the global models can't focus that down terribly well on what will happen here. They seem to say, uh, we've got another 15 years of buying sandbags, and after that, the, the temperature humidity battle will, you know, temperature will win, and we're going to dry out. And so, so there's those long kinds of long-term concerns that way. And the other aspect is, what does climate change do to the rest of the world? When you sit on the world's most productive soils, if you've got some water to work them, they're going to be in hot demand. And right now, about 40% of the world's food comes from irrigated lands. And most of the climate models do suggest that those irrigated places that are dry to start with will be getting drier. What demands that shifts to Iowa is part of of the question, and and probably the most unpredictable part of one. But it's it's bound to be a a large impact.
1: And, and this takes me way back to grade school. And it's a stupid question I would have asked then. I'll just ask you now. Is there any way to use the ocean's salty waters um, economically to produce food?
4: Um, to produce food?
1: Well, food or, or, or what people need Or just need for, to live. for whatever we just, want just water food. for.
4: Um, yeah, there, there are places that desalinize yeah. water. Um, it's expensive. Yeah, yeah. It's very energy intensive. And you end up with a lot of salt. Of course, you got an ocean to kind of hide it in, mm-hmm. so, so that mm-hmm. kind of works out, but it, 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 it's, a, it's a dollar cost. Yeah. It's just a dollar cost. There are places that do it, but then there are places who have <coughs> that have looked at um, floating icebergs, because that they'll, they'll retain enough before they melt and get them down somewhere warm and dry and use it that way. Sure. Uh, Southern California at one point in time was looking at tanker loads of water from the rivers coming off of British Columbia. Yeah. But it drives up costs. And then, you know, what... what yeah. <laughs> how, how do you... Uh, w- w- in this country, we're pretty used to, to free access mm-hmm. to water. Very cheap. What comes out of the tap, you don't pay much for. Um, most of the world doesn't have that kind of luxury. Yeah, right.
1: And what comes out of the tap in Iowa, you feel confident that it's it's safe. It's had the right kind of treatment, as it as it you know is it's, moved into a yeah, human... It's,
4: it's it's treated to the kinds of standards that are applied across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that is uh, as good as it should be is something that we always learn through time, as they as they do more uh, kind of tests on that
7: mm-hmm. kind of thing.
4: Um, I'm sure there's things coming through that tap that 30 years from now will be, they will set some standards on that are lower than than what we're drinking, but no one knows what those are. Sure.
1: Yeah. Well, let me just ask, has Rob Quick arrived? I don't know if, hi Rob, would you please join us up here? Uh, Rob Quick is coming, in fact, from a conference. that's happening uh, a little bit uh, across campus here on this same topic, uh, water, and uh, Rob Quick is from the uh, Centers for Disease Control, and I want to say thank you very much. I know you've just finished one presentation, so thanks for coming here. Um, and you are a medical epidemiologist, I Yes. Guess. And And you work with foodborne diseases, diarrheal diseases, yeah, and so on. Our group's
6: called the Waterborne Diseases Prevention Branch. Yeah, yeah.
1: So tell us a little bit about... Um, Sort of an overview of what you do when you're investigating water and the things that happen related to water on a global perspective?
6: Well, there are several um, categories of things we do. One is um, we do respond to outbreak situations. Um, I'm sure you've heard about the cholera outbreak in Haiti. Uh, We were very involved in that. We go to these situations. We try to determine what the risk factors for transmission are. Make recommendations to ministries of health to help them direct their prevention efforts. So, we do that. We also develop interventions and test interventions to prevent waterborne disease around the world. Our particular group is international, so all of our work is outside of this country. Uh, We also work with uh, ministries of health and the UN to develop norms for water treatment, water management, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. all all focused on preventing disease.
1: Right. Well, you've heard uh, Bob's conversation about Iowa here. Uh, Does that sound from, I know that you work internationally, but from what you know of the United States, does that sound like um, sort of the average picture of what's going on in this country, the kind of water issues we're facing? And if so, how does that, how different is that from what the rest of the world is looking at?
6: I think you can take the problems we have Uh, in the US and just make them more extreme. And it really describes what you've got in the rest of the world. People say that water will be the new oil in the 21st century and that wars will be fought over oil. In fact, wars already are being fought over oil. with climate change, you have a lot of problems, like uh, glaciers retreating that feed these enormous rivers in Asia that are a main water source for the people. What's going to happen? You know, what sources are they going to have? Um, they also have very similar issues between drought and excess, You know, flooding. Um, and we're seeing more and more extreme weather events. It's interesting talking to farmers in other parts of the world who, uh, for example, in Kenya, where I work a lot. They say you cannot predict the weather anymore. There used to be the short rains and the long rains, and then the dry season. Now you just can't tell, and they just rush out to plant things when the rains start coming.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then, then help us understand how this affects food and and uh, um, you know the health, well-being. Uh, take it just for expand out from water and drought and all of that into what those cascading effects are when your water falls apart.
6: It really helps in a climate change situation like we're in now to be in a wealthy country with a lot of resources to buffer you from you know the, the problems of drought and decreased food production, the ability to move food around and uh, respond. When you're in resource poor settings, it becomes very difficult to manage uh, these problems. Uh, food production is terribly affected. Right now, again, going back to Kenya, there's a drought going on now that's very serious. And famine is an issue. They're trying to figure out how to move food um, to the affected population. So um, they're, they live on a much, um, much thinner margin of security than we do. So <laughs> droughts are more of a problem flooding is more of a problem and you get these extreme floods like you had in Pakistan earlier this year or I guess last year and um, uh, all the disruption of populations and food production and the disease it causes so uh, it, it's a serious problem and it um, you know the the efforts to mitigated or just that much more difficult in situations where you don't have the resources. Mm
1: -hmm. Is there any reversing it? It sounds as though we're progressing toward a time where water will become less and less a dependable resource, or something we can, as you say, sort of um, schedule in the sense that we'll have a lot this year, maybe less next year. But it'll always kind of come back. Are, Are you imagining that, whether it's climate change or whatever else it might be, Are we going towards something that cannot be reversed?
6: I'm not a climate scientist, but climate scientists um, that I've talked to are very concerned. I think we're in an area where nobody really knows what's going to happen, Um, but the changes seem to be accelerating in people's um, opinions, in a lot of people's opinions. So I think it's going to, you know, really we'll see if we, as Humans can rise to the occasion and make some of the changes that we need to do to at least slow down the effects. Just, you know, in the world, there about 3% of water is fresh water. You know, 97% is salt water in the oceans. So that's what we're working with. And a lot of that's tied up in glaciers and other areas mm-hmm. that is hard to ex- access. And, of course, when it... Melts and it's gone. It tends to flow into the ocean. So, right. uh, you know, there. I think there's a good reason for everybody to be concerned, and it would be really nice if our the people who make decisions in this society and in Europe and other places could make the hard decisions to uh, wisely use resources and do the right thing to slow down climate change. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you have anything you want to add to that, Bob?
4: We've had these kinds of discussions and and people... uh, There's almost two sides to the climate change uh, end of it. Uh, They use the term mitigate. That means stop putting off as much CO2 into the atmosphere. And the other term is adapt. And we are already adapting. (laughs) Because it's already going on. Um, And some people ask, is it too late to mitigate? Well, it's too late to mitigate and stop what's already going on and the path we're on that's going to carry us another 10 or 15 years in the future. But you just keep projecting that path out if we don't start mitigating now. So, so we've, we've, we're, we're down the slope quite mm-hmm. a ways mm-hmm. and um, anything we can do to stop us from going further is good. Um, but yeah, we're, we're in a bit of uncertain, unknown territory even at this point.
1: This is a slightly um, different topic, but I'll, I'll ask you what your thoughts are in um, the situation in Japan. This television moment where the mayor of Tokyo took the drink of the water and declared it to be uh, safe today, whereas the day before it was uh, apparently declared dangerous, at least for babies. I mean, what what does a population need to know when a crisis like that happens? And um, maybe in japan there's enough bottled water available to get people through a little bit of a crisis but if water has been affected by the radiation what kind of timeline are they looking at before we might all feel comfortable with drinking it
6: it's yeah this is another one of those situations that you know have we really been there before do we really know what's going to happen i mean you know there's been chernobyl there there's been three mile island this is a different uh, situation. They all are. We do know that the radiation is in the food supply. It's in some of the produce they're growing. It's, uh, they found it in milk. <coughs> they, they have found it in water. The, um, from what I've read, it appears that it's not at a level that would put, say, an adult at risk. Um, you can remove some of the radiation from the radioactive material from the water through flocculation and filtering and that sort of thing. I don't know if you can remove it all. Um, mm-hmm. There are strategies they can use, but um, I think there's reason to be concerned. And I would really want to, if I lived there, I would want the government, the water authority, to be monitoring this very closely. But from what I've read to this point, I, th- I don't think they're at a real crisis point to where they, the water is completely unusable.
1: Good. Well, let's hope not. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if we have concluding thoughts, anything else you'd like to say, um, I, I want to say thank you very much for coming to join us. And um, this big water conference that's being held here, I, I know people are speaking on um, the topic from many different uh, points of view. A number of international scholars are here. And do you expect to hear anything sort of surprising? Are you waiting to hear some data delivered that will uh, show you something shocking or no?
6: I would love to hear somebody (laughs) say that they have the answer. The silver bullet for treating water in the developing world. We've been waiting for this. We have lots of strategies but Nothing is yeah. really there. So I, I would love yeah. to yeah. hear something like that. <laughs> well,
1: you let us know, of course, mm-hmm. if something is said. Mm-hmm. So Rob Quick, thank you. And Bob Libra, thanks very much for being with us. Thank thanks. you. Thanks. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> OK, so we'll invite our next uh, guests up now uh, as they come. I am uh, Joan Carrey. Yes, that's you, Laurie, and Viraj. And uh, so I'm Joan Kerr, if you've just joined us, this is World Canvas from International Programs and our program tonight is called Starving for Water. If you'd like to hear this program again, there are numerous places in which you'll be able to find it. On cable systems around the state, thanks to our friends and partners at UITV. On our local UI radio station, KRUI-FM, and on Iowa Public Radio statewide. We also post the program for free internet listening on the site, the Public Radio Exchange. Um, so let me introduce now the two people who just joined me, Laurie Graham. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. And Viraj Thacker. Good to have you with us. So I'll start with you, Laura. Um, you're an associate professor of anthropology here at the University of Iowa. Your current research, I guess, focuses on uh, the politics of indigenous representation to broad publics, and uh, you focus on indigenous peoples in South America. I know that you have worked as a part of the, the team on the film owners of the water. Um, so let's let's learn a little bit about the work you do as an anthropologist in South America.
0: Well, I didn't actually initially start out looking at water, but came to it because it is such a huge issue um, in the area of Brazil where I work with a, a group called the Chavante. Um, and they are along with the Yanomami, one of the most well-known groups um, in Brazil internationally, although you may not have heard of them. There's about 14,000 of them now. Um, And they live in the central Brazilian plateau, which is a savanna, uh, or cerrado is what it's called in Portuguese area. Um, And there's been a lot of attention to the rainforest in the Amazon rainforest, the lungs of the world, Um, how deforestation in the Amazon is affecting climate change, the lungs of the world, and so on. And the Amazon itself is really a complex area. There's the rainforest area, which is right along the Amazon River, and also the tributaries to the Amazon itself. But much of the drainage to the Amazon and the major tributaries to the Amazon come out of the Cerrado, the Mm -hmm. Central Brazilian Plateau area. And this is an area that is having the world's largest agricultural boom now, um, and that is in soy. So it may feel like in Iowa that Mm -hmm. we're very disconnected from what's going on in Central Brazil, but in fact, Um, The same kinds of processes that Robert talked about are happening there, but really without any government regulation. And a very compressed time span going from zero to 150 in terms of mechanized agribusiness. Um, So I started working with the Chivante in the early 1980s, and it was extremely remote. It took me days to get there. Um, There was the beginnings of the Trans-Amazon Highway, but it was not paved. There weren't bridges in place. And during the rainy season, because this is an area where there is or historically has been a very defined wet and dry season. And and now that's changing. In fact, the last couple of years, there's been a major drought in in the area. Um, So it was very difficult to get there, and there wasn't much around it. There were some cattle ranches. now it feels like really going to a different planet there. Um, there are big agricultural, it, it feels like driving around in Iowa. In fact, um, the last time that I was there, I came directly from central Brazil up to Iowa City and um, drove out to Okaboji for I think it was Labor Day weekend or something. And as I drove across the northern part of the state, I was seeing the same kind of landscape as in central Brazil, with huge grain elevators and uh, big warehouses, lots of machinery. Um, And this is an area that 20 years ago, there was nothing there at all. Um, And so uh, what's been happening is the implementation of huge ranches or farms. Um, The soil is not rich like in Iowa. Um, It's a lateritic soil filled with a lot of acids, and um, huge amounts of uh, chemical pesticides, um, nitrates, and fertilizers need to be used, and so ranchers have been coming in and um, planting huge areas, um, and this all just began really in the 1980s, and what made the change was the development of soy that was resistant to the temperatures in the Amazon. And so, and that coincided with the occurrence of mad cow disease um, and the demand for soy rising worldwide. And so this agricultural boom that's happening in Brazil, and Brazil is now the world's largest uh, soy exporting country, and Mato Grosso, which is where the chivante live, is the Largest soy producing area in Brazil. So it's growing exponentially without, virtually without government regulation, um, heavy use of chemical uh, pesticides. Um, And ranchers, for example, will um, wash their, I have seen this, wash their um, pesticide application machinery in the rivers. And this will cause fish kills that that go on for kilometers. And one rancher told me that he had contacted um, IBAMA, which is the Environmental Protection Agency in Brazil. In the whole Amazon area, there were only two agents who uh, are responsible for documenting and and implementing implementing fines and so on. So no one ever checked it out. So how I specifically came to this is through my research um, with an indigenous group and the way that they use culture um, in a broader arena, the way they're trying to have other um, communities be aware of them and of their struggles. And so looking at their cultural presentations to outsiders, how they have taken rituals out of traditional contexts and put them on stage, literally, tour around. This one group has been to the Festival Avignon, the Venice Biennale, and so on. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of interest in um, traditional cultures. And um, one of the things they are doing is using their culture to bring attention to the political struggles that they have. And the, the devastation of the Cerrado environment because of soy agribusiness is the big issue there. Um, and so one of the events that I was documenting, I, uh, was invited down, uh, to come help tell the story about this one group's campaign to save the Sahado. And they began looking at the destruction, uh, that f- soy ranching was doing in adjacent areas to their reserves, which are protected, but of course they're not entirely protected because, um, pesticides will be used in in a ranch, and then the rivers flow through the indigenous areas. And that's what these people drink. There's no Mm. water filtration system. Mm. Um, There's no municipal water supply that treats it for them. So they bathe there. They drink the water. They use the water in many of their rituals. It's really celebrated as a source of life for them. It's very meaningful in terms of their cosmology, uh, the the beliefs about the world. Um, So they want to bring attention to what's happening, Mm -hmm. and they invited me to come uh, document this. And of course they can tell their own story. Mm -hmm. But I think having um, an academic from the from in fact from the first world was something that gives a little in the local context some kind of political cachet, Mm -hmm. So they are doing an an act. They um, actually put on a demonstration, blocked a bridge across one of the tributaries that goes right through their area um, that is being contaminated. And they wanted to bring attention to this um, at the local level, but also the governor of the state is uh, the world's largest soy rancher. Um, so policy in Brazil does not favor environmental and water protection. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they wanted the governor to know that they're aware of the effects of water on their, on their livelihoods. They want better regulation. Um, and so they staged this protest, blocked um, one of the major highways for agri- agricultural transportation that takes the soy and other agricultural produce out of central Brazil to major commercial centers, like the ports on the Amazon that will ship it to China and Japan and so on. And this was a really fascinating event. And I had brought with me um, an indigenous person from Venezuela who lives in a very arid region, which is just the opposite of central Brazil, which has got, during the rainy season, lots and lots of water. I thought it would be interesting for these members of two different indigenous groups that have different kinds of problems mm-hmm. with water to come together and you know exchange ideas. Um, and so they held up they held up the traffic on the bridge. It was a very peaceful protest. Um, and this film uh, called "Owners of of the Water," which we'll be screening tomorrow at one, I, um, I think. Um, it has. Been you know the the film process itself was very interesting. Um, The exchange about water between the two indigenous groups and the attention that it brought locally, but also globally um, to this things that I had never anticipated. Um, We made this film because it was such a a rich and very politically um, salient event. We thought you know we need to let people see what happened here in this remote area of Brazil. Uh, we put up press releases it was those press releases were taken up um, let's see there was um, an npr program that aired Mm -hmm. some of that Uh, japanese tv um, documentary was done on central brazil and because of this they they came and documented what's happening with the Chavante, and the film has taken on a life of its own it's been at this smithsonian native film festival um, it's been in Nepal, it's been all around the world, bringing attention to the water struggle in central Brazil by a very small indigenous group.
1: Yeah. Is it your sense that, that this will make a difference for these people, the international attention, that, that there will be support for the indigenous peoples' rights, or, or is it just one more sad event where the indigenous peoples, in fairly short order, will find that you know, life moves on and they're left behind?
0: Well, I think one of the things that's really important to recognize about indigenous peoples or any community that we think of as impoverished, um, that, that they are agents. They are people who are taking action, even if it's uh, very small kinds of mm-hmm. resistance at the local level. And so when we made this film, we didn't necessarily expect that it would... In fact, it was shown to Al Gorb as part of his prep materials yeah. before he went to Brazil. Um, it, so that's been really gratifying. I, I think that they they want it to be known internationally, mm-hmm. but they're constantly taking steps to, to bring attention to what's happening mm-hmm. there. Um, and. There are situations in the world that get a lot of attention. For example, in central Brazil, there is a plan to put over 120 hydroelectric dams on rivers. So one of the big ones is Belo Monte that many people have heard about. James Cameron was down there. Um, Those campaigns to stop a dam get a lot of attention. The kinds of campaigns, and there's many, many of them all over the world, um, need attention, and there are activists working, and those activists make connections with other people, and that's what's happening in central Brazil. The indigenous peoples who live in, in small communities are beginning to realize that because of the soy agriculture, because of the kinds of contamination that's happening in the water, They share common cause Mm -hmm. with other indigenous peoples, with other Riverine peoples, um, and they're not alone. And that's what's happening and that's, I think, what's really exciting is that the networks are building. And as they realize that uh, they have allies elsewhere in the world, Mm -hmm. they put pressure on us, for example, I can't just be an academic that goes down there and documents their stuff. Mm -hmm. I have a responsibility to make what's happening there known, to let people know about what's going on. And all of those things, I think, can give us some hope, and they're very exciting.
1: Oh, thank you, Laurie. That's tremendous to hear about it. And let's uh, bring Viraj into this conversation as well. You mentioned Nepal. Viraj is from Nepal, and um, just give you a small introduction. Uh, Viraj Thacker is the author of *The Myth of Prosperity: Globalization and the South*. And you're going to talk about globalization, development, uh, South Asia. You are also the executive director for Manushi for Sustainable uh, Development, an NGO based in Kathmandu. So, welcome, Viraj, and, and thank you, tell us something about about, maybe you can react
5: to what Laurie said, and. uh, and Well, uh, I agree with, you know, most of what she said, and I think uh, in the world today, the media and generally people don't want to hear about these issues, although there is a lot happening. And climate change is a hard issue to digest. And uh, I focus in my book on India with the, I call it the myth of prosperity, because India is one of the newly emerging economies where A lot of focus is shown on, you know, the prosperity that is happening in India, but uh, when I did my dissertation on this topic, I was told that I was going against the tide writing about such issues, but I insisted on sticking with it, and I think I'm starting to prove right now where India is emerging, where India is having some troubles in its economics, and down the line we'll see that the environment will be a big problem, and uh, the biggest closet in the skeleton that they have is their population, which the two things always clash, (laughs) so... Yeah.
1: Um, what, what is particularly unique about the stresses on the environment, water particularly, in the area you studied?
5: Well, what's unique, my, my study was more had to do with international relations, the north-south divide, mm-hmm. but if you look specifically, one thing that stands out in that whole belt is the retreat of Himalayan glaciers, which are retreating at a very alarming rate. And uh, people don't take note of this, or even the minor temperature increases that are happening. For example, if we even have a one-degree Celsius increase, that's going to affect glaciers where they're going to retreat by 50 meters a year. So I think that's a big issue when you have billions of people involved, where already you have limited access to water and sanitation, Mm -hmm. and this just adds to the problem and aggravates it much more.
1: Well, when we talked a week or so ago, you mentioned uh, a beautiful area, an area you knew as a child that now seems only a shadow of its former self. Yeah,
5: and that is the Kathmandu Valley which, uh, if you go back in the 1950s, was supposedly called the last Shangri-La that was left. But I've seen in the last 45 years the changes in that valley. Of course, a lot has to do with the Maoist conflict, conflict in yeah. Nepal, and also the role of donors, where donors initially were mu- much more active in Nepal in hands-on issues. Now donors have kind of learned to do in Rome, as the Romans do, where they back off from politics, where they need to come in, and I say this also for the USAID, which could have a much larger role in Nepal, influencing Nepali politics in the right way, but that is not happening, unfortunately. And that beautiful valley we speak about is now a terrible mess. So mm. yeah, that, that's, you know, what you see when you go there, so. Right, yes. right,
1: right. So, so what's the way out? Um, what needs to happen in Nepal, in India,
5: Well, I think it all eventually goes back to us as individuals knowing that all of this is happening in the world, the environment is a problem, and as our other distinguished speakers said, it's something we don't have a grip on. But what we do have a grip on is the awareness that if we consume less, think about the billions of people in the world that don't have anything, something can be done. And I think it goes back to that kind of personal philosophy of sustainability, and also taking it up as an individual challenge, which will also give the right message to our future generations. And I sincerely feel in all my research that it keeps coming back to the philosophical question where if you don't do that, you really don't know what you're heading for. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that has come out in the disaster in Japan, where we think we have a grip, but in reality, it remains to be seen, Mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm.
1: Laurie, any any reactions to what Viraj has talked about in Nepal?
0: Um, well, you know, it makes me think about the, just the rapidity of, of the transformation. When you right. mentioned yes. the last Shangri-La, th- th- this is happening. It's happening in central Brazil. Right. It's happening in so many places. Mm-hmm. And uh, we really do need to think about yes. ways that we can, in our own daily lives, yep, make a difference.
5: Absolutely, mm-hmm. Especially when you see the example I give is that, you know, a uh, bath full of water, bath water, which we use in one bath. If you if you translate that to a slum in India, Nepal, Brazil or any other place in the world, you can have a community of a thousand people that'll use that use that water in one day. So these are the kind of equations mm-hmm. I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So I certainly feel that in our own lives, if we decide to consume a little less and that becomes a priority for a larger group of people, it's going to impact the world in a positive way. Mm-hmm. But until we don't do that, I'm afraid we're heading in a direction that we don't really know much about. So. Right,
1: right. That's well, you know, there was an article that Bob Libra wrote for a, a, in advance of this yeah. program that was titled, if I remember correctly, Bob, I think you uh, called it hum- uh, water, human right or liquid asset. And um, I, I guess we've already heard in this program people discuss it from yes. you know, both sides, but you clearly belief that this it is a human right for people to have usable water and sanitation and whatnot
5: i guess this is the big question that is in debate and has been for some time because the two ways of looking at it are either water is a human need which is the corporate way to go so if it becomes a human need then it's subject to becoming a commodity for trade meaning governments kind of lay their hands off but if it's uh, defined as a human as a human need, sorry. Mm-hmm. As opposed to a human, uh, what is it, human right? Sorry. Mm-hmm. If it's a human mm-hmm. right, then mandatory government policies activated to ensure that there's unconditional access for everyone, mm-hmm. which kind of puts corporations into accountability. And I think that's what we want to see more of. And mm-hmm. we just have to hope and keep our fingers crossed that it stays that way, where mm-hmm. water remains a human right. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, thank you so much, both of you, for sharing these interesting and sort of related stories. So thank you, and good luck with Owners of the Water, and also with your book, Faraj. Thank, you, thank you so thank much you very for joining much. us. Thank you. And- <clears throat> Um, And here is a copy of uh, Viraj Thacker's book, The Myth of Prosperity, Globalization, and the South. And I hope if any of you are interested in reading this book, you'll take a look at it later on. Uh, So please come on up, Alexandra and um, Cliff Misson and Matt. Matt Olaf, Alexandra Douglas, and Cliff Misson are joining us. Now, tell us a little bit about the work you do in Burundi.
8: Definitely. I work with an organization called the Friends Women's Association, Um, which is a grassroots organization which was founded by and for Burundian women during the height of the Civil War, which went from 1993 until 2005. Who wanted to work together to improve one another's lives Mm -hmm. and it was a group of women who had gathered and met one another during a workshop which was focused on recovering from trauma from the war and the intersection that trauma has with hiv aids and especially through sexual violence use of rape as a tactic of war and these group of women gathered and they said what can we do to empower one another and and help each other both through the period of war and in the once we go out of war and move into the post-conflict period. And so they began looking at the various issues and the unique ways that war affects women in both the conflict and post-conflict environment. They were looking at poverty, disease, sexual violence, HIV-AIDS, and wondering what can we do. And through that they decided that public health would be the entry point into um, women's empowerment and so today we have a health clinic in Kamenge which is a northern slum of the capital city and it's it's a very Im- it's important to talk about the location in which Mm -hmm. we work because Kamenge during the war, was considered the rebel stronghold. And even today, you feel this very tense stigmatization. When I tell people as a white woman that I work in Kamenge, people go, oh my gosh, you shouldn't go there. Because to this day, many of the larger NGOs, the UN, the Red Cross, they will actually say that their workers cannot go into this area because of the historical context of violence and yet the reason that th- this group of women chose to work there was for precisely that reason we need to be working in the context to begin to mitigate conflict to address you know crucial public health issues to address the structural issues that underlie mm-hmm. underlie violence and so when we talk about water i mean we're approaching it from um, a public health perspective i always find it interesting as you know, for me being a foreign worker, I came from working in Bolivia actually and working very closely with the water rights movement there. And I remember we used to always say, el agua es la vida, you know, water is life. And I think that's very true when we translate that into another context like Burundi. Um, Because what we're seeing in Burundi is not necessarily the same question of the privatization of water, but we're seeing what impact water has on public health. And so today, when we talk about water in Burundi, we're seeing um, the crisis that's being created from both global climate change and as others have already talked about, the shifts in the rains and the cycles, Mm -hmm. but also the effects of war with the deforestation that happened when mass populations were displaced. They were looking for firewood as they fled civil war, they fled massacres, and the deforestation has caused a degradation of the soil that is making it harder and harder to produce foods. And so especially in an area like where we work, which is a slum, and we're talking about access to clean water and access to good foods combined with the after effects of war and ma- very high levels of disease like HIV-AIDS, we begin to see the struggles of people finding nutritional foods to eat. In the area where I work, there are actually only nine water spigots um, to service the entire community, which is roughly 52,000 people, and so if you can imagine 52,000 people trying to access nine water spigots at a time, what do you do? And so part of mm-hmm. our work is trying to build sustainable solutions and also looking at at health as an entry point into whole well-being and so rather than taking this sectoral approach to begin to say how do we look at the entire context of one woman or one family and begin to see a sustainable future and a long-term piece. And so the way that we do that is that we work by addressing primary care needs, but then we also integrate all of our patients into social assistance programs. And so we focus on microfinance to address the socioeconomic issues, which help get access to better foods, nutritional foods. Through that, we also focus on urban gardens. And through a partner organization called the Healing and Rebuilding Our Communities Project, we're also working on building water sanitation. can. Um, Biosand filters that this project actually works with former combatants as a way of reintegration, but also working on critical issues like water access and safe water, and to begin to work with a very stigmatized community to provide a vital asset, which then helps with that longer term reconciliation within a country that has been so torn apart by civil war.
1: Wow, what, what an amazing project, and <laughs> I think it's great. How many people work with you in the clinic?
8: We're 13 members on our staff so we're very small we're very grassroots I'm the only international staff member mm-hmm. um, and so otherwise we're an entirely locally grown and and I always like to emphasize that part of the power of what we do is that we are community based because down to the very bricks that our clinic was built out of they were formed out of the mud and fired on a kiln on our property and it's the community who has come together mm-hmm. since 2002 you know and I always say in Burundi you start operating out of a building as, t- as soon as you have two walls and a you know a piece mm-hmm. of metal thrown mm-hmm. over the top. But since 2002, we've expanded. And now we have, I think, nine rooms um, that are servicing in our clinic. Mm-hmm. And we're in the process of, it, process of expanding even further.
1: Wow. So so how does the government involve itself in, for example, assisting communities to create more wells or mm-hmm. whatever? Is Are there projects like this happening in Burundi? Um,
8: it's, it's a very difficult question. I mean, Burundi is in a very precarious position globally because both if you think about its context and its location, it's surrounded by many of the giants. You've got the Democratic Republic of Congo, you've got Kenya, you've got Tanzania, and many of these areas are very resource rich, and yet both Burundi and Rwanda are extremely resource poor. Mm -hmm. There are virtually no natural resources to speak of in Burundi, and so Burundi is very dependent on foreign aid, particularly bilateral and multinational aid. I always give the example that Today in the cash economy, you know, it requires that we have crops. The two um, most cash producing crops in Burundi are coffee and tea, which together produce somewhere around 75 or 80 percent of the cash flow of the the gross national product. I always get GNP and GDP confused. (laughs) But with that, that's about $300 million of the money that's being circulated in country And that's out of about $750 million that are in the country. And so the rest of that money is predominantly coming through bilateral and multinational aid, as well as the NGOs that are working. Mm -hmm. And so the government projects are being funded by outside, but truthfully, there's not enough being done. And the government is taking measures to work with this, um, you know, because a lot of the issues that we're seeing are maternal and child deaths. um, Child mortality is very closely linked to waterborne disease. And the government has made efforts with foreign aid to try and provide free maternal and child health care, but then we're seeing the reverse effects of that, even though if we talk about the Millennium Development Goals, sometimes Burundi is you know, stated as a success story of actually improving child mortality. Um, and yet, in 2010, we saw that the government actually wasn't able to pay clinics and hospitals for the, pre, for the free services that they were providing. So it's a very complicated situation. Um, that I sometimes struggle to find the answer to and yet I continually come back to this hope that I see when I work with individuals and communities and see individual lives mm-hmm. that are changed with projects like ours and we see mm-hmm. one family that's breaking out of this cycle and beginning mm-hmm. to eat good foods and have access to safe water.
1: Right. Well, I think it's a very natural connection to Cliff Misson's project Wellspring Africa, a different part of Africa that you primarily have worked in, but uh, tell us about Wellspring Africa and this contraption you brought with us just sitting off behind you.
7: (laughs) Yeah, so, well, Wellspring Africa is an organization I founded back in 1984. Um, I had worked in a clinic in a village in a remote part of Liberia in 82, and the bulk of the things that we were treating was from either a lack of water during the dry season or poor quality water during the wet season. I tried to convince the villagers to dig a well, because I had homesteaded in Alaska when I was young, and that's what we did. But it turns out that these particular folks believed in evil spirits in the ground. And so nobody was interested in climbing into a 60-foot hole and meeting evil (laughs) spirits. So I came back to the States with the challenge of finding a way to make a hole Uh, to drill a hole. And uh, interestingly, I was was in the capital city, Monrovia, and the US AID people are like, oh well, we can get a helicopter and bring in a truck, because this this village I was in was five hours away from the nearest road. So they all these grand ideas, but I was interested in finding out the simple, small-scale ways of doing this, and hit the history books out at the Evergreen State College with some of my colleagues there, and we went back to look at how people have been drilling wells over time. And uh, turns out, one of the most dangerous places to live on the planet, in the history of the planet, was London in the early 1700s. You know, lots of spoiled surface water and people dying from all kinds of diseases, right? What changed was Marco Polo's men wandering off to China, where for, since 1100 BC, they'd been drilling deep wells using these very tools right here and they went, learned these technologies, brought them back to Europe, sunk the first deep wells in Paris and London. Mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson used these tools to drill a well here in America, and uh, thank you, Peter, (laughs) 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 you make it look easy. (laughs) Um, And even up into the late 1800s, people were drilling oil wells in Oklahoma using this very technology, hand-powered percussion. And then Mm -hmm. as steam engines came along, these designs just got larger and bigger, and this technology almost disappeared. So um, we've been recapturing the technology, retooling it using more modern materials, and training people around the world on how to drill water wells. So we can go anywhere in the world for less than $250 out of local materials, build a drill, and go through 400 feet. And so that's uh, that's, that's what Wellspring Africa is about written a book on the subject actually i'm really proud of this this just came out this last week working with the practica foundation in um, in the the netherlands on uh, putting together manuals Mm -hmm. for small-scale drillers and this is one of the issues of the billion people in the world who are still left without water 85 percent of them are in rural areas and there's just, the economics don't work to take big, large, expensive, multi-million dollar trucks into rural areas and drill wells. And so there's a group of us working, uh, Enterprise Works, the Practica Foundation, UNICEF, others working on building up cadres of local, what we call artisanal drillers. People who can, on the local economy, using tools that can be afforded by the, by the villagers, drill deep, safe wells. Um, on their, on their local economy. Um, so I was in Niger this uh, two summers ago, been, in, been working in Tanzania, training drillers there. Um, and now we've, we've gone even beyond that. At this point, I'm, I'm less interested in training well drillers as I'm interested in training water entrepreneurs. Because it's not so much how to drill well. I can teach somebody how to drill well in a few days the issue is how to how to work with the villagers to make all of the decisions about who's going to manage this well how they're going to use the water about putting together the finances about pulling together the resources that are available a free pump from the government you know some instru- you know structural materials for the teachers how to do all of that mm-hmm. all of the all of the uh, logistics of bringing you know making a water source and then creating water sources and Um, having them last for years. So that is more than just training somebody to drill a well. It's Mm -hmm. about training people to make it their business. Sort of like we have the Culligan man here Mm -hmm. in the US, right? (laughs) Somebody who's just, that's their business. They set up water wells and they maintain them and teach people how to keep them going.
1: Yeah. Now, when when these uh, drills do locate the water, they suddenly have a working well. I'm sorry, I don't know enough about testing water to make sure that it's you know safe and clean and good and whatnot. Does one just assume that if you go down 300 feet and water comes up, it's safe?
7: Not necessarily. there are a lot of there are a lot of concerns. If you actually, if you go down 300 feet there may, you may be tapping into lime, water, all kinds of stuff that would actually be dangerous for folks. Um, The the closer the water is to the surface, there's kind of, if it's too close to the surface, you got trouble with bacteria. If it's too deep, you got problems with um, other things that might be down there. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can't really call it. But in some of the areas Mm -hmm. we work, we'll get water, we'll test it, and if we find water at a particular level fairly consistently Mm -hmm. and it tests out fine, then we'll just say, go for it. The ideal, of course, if we had the money, it would be to test every water source. Um, But that's, you know, sometimes we just get a 55-gallon drum full of water, pour in a gallon of bleach, pour it down the hole to inject the water, leave it down there for a couple days, pump it out and say, ah, close enough, right? (laughs) But that's what, if we look back at our history of how we developed water sources around Iowa, how we developed water sources around the world, people weren't testing their water even 50 years ago. So, um, this roll of the dice is likely the water's better <laughs> than the surface water. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah.
8: yeah. Oh, well, thanks for telling
1: us about that. Does that have any implications, do you think, for, for Burundi? Well,
8: actual access um, to water isn't as big of an issue just because we're right next to Lake Tanganyika, which is actually one of the largest supplies of fresh water mm-hmm. in the world. Um, And so we don't have the same questions of actually needing to drill, but sometimes it's getting the water out to some of the rural villages. I mean, and even though Burundi is a very small geographic area, it's very mountainous. And so sometimes, even though there is water available, getting it up a hill could be a four hour walk for some people that I know, um, depending on where you're living. And I don't know much about drilling in mountains and how far down you would have to go to reach a water source mm-hmm. in that, but it, it would be an interesting question, though I've not heard of, of well projects as commonly in mm-hmm. Burundi because of the proximity of, of fresh water that's right. more on a surface right.
1: Well, let's bring you into the conversation, Matt Olaf. You're here from um, Food and Water Watch, and you're the Iowa coordinator of Food and Water Watch. Tell us what your organization is and does.
9: Food and Water Watch, we're a national consumer advocacy organization based out of Washington, D.C. We work on a lot of domestic policies, so it's interesting to get a global perspective today. Uh, We do believe that our uh, food and water resources are a human right and that they're public resources that need to be protected, so uh, the mission of our organization is to defend and protect our food and water resources and fight against the corporate abuse and corporate control of our food and water resources, so um, we are very fortunate here in America to have uh, water at our tap in most homes and residences around the country. Um, unfortunately, right now what we're seeing is a crumbling infrastructure of our drinking water resources. Uh, we made huge investments generations ago to make sure everybody had uh, safe, healthy, affordable uh, drinking water. Um, over the decades, we have not maintained that infrastructure, and especially now with the economic collapse and city governments facing budget crises. A lot of cities are looking at s- uh, selling and leasing their utilities to private corporations. So we are fighting to prevent that. We also have a campaign called Take Back the Tap where we educate folks on the myths and ills of bottled water and, um, and th- the fact that we need to reinvest, again reinvest in our drinking water infrastructure um, instead of supporting bottled water use. One interesting thing to, um, to talk about since folks are talking, uh, we're, we're talking about international issues. Is that the jig is 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 somewhat up in um, in the Western world, in Canada, the United States, and the European Union around bottled water? Um, sales are declining since 2007, um, but in order to make up the profit margins, these bottled water companies—Nestle, Coca-Cola, uh, Pepsi—they're marketing towards developing countries. Um, that's where their profit margins are going up, and towards uh, recent immigrants here in the United States because they're not accustomed to having uh, accessible drinking water. They still hold perceptions that, that tap water and drinking water um, is unsafe. So uh, that's, that's one interesting thing to think mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. around the bottled water issue.
1: So um, as devil's advocate, give me the other side of the argument. Why should we not think of water as um, you know, con- sort of common property, part of the commons of our, our planet? Why should we not privatize water?
9: Um, I think somebody mentioned it earlier that water is life. We depend on water to survive. And once it's commodified and um, folks are unable to afford higher price water, um, it's the end of life for some people. So it's a necessity and it's something Mm -hmm. that needs to be controlled by the public in Mm -hmm. public hands.
1: How do you feel uh, the mood in Congress is, for example, um, the current Congress toward the issues you're working on?
9: That's a good question. with the budget crisis I mentioned on the, lo- mentioned on the local muni- municipal level, um, in Congress right now there are severe budget cuts being proposed. Um, one of the ways that municipal uh, water sources get funding to maintain and, and upgrade their infrastructure is through state revolving funds, mm-hmm. and that, those are being cut um, substantially in the proposed budgets um, working their way through Congress. The o- Obama's budget is is not as bad, but it's still pretty bad. So we're looking at some some serious uh, budget shortfalls on the national level. So once again, we're pushing, um, Food and Water Watch, we're pushing for legislation to be passed through Congress that we're calling Renew America's Water, and it would essentially close the funding gap between what drinking water utilities have around the country, which is, um, and and what they need, which is $25 billion. So it's a $25 billion gap. We want to close that gap and make sure that we're able to have safe drinking water for generations to come.
5: Mm-hmm.
7: Mm-hmm. Well, one of the effects I see around, because um, in my day job, I travel all over Sub-Saharan Africa, and, you know, I've been to 24 universities, um, and not one of them had safe drinking water coming from the tap. Um, that's This is how serious the water problem is in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and what happens is that wealthy families buy distillers and they buy filters and they buy bottled water. And so they're not out there advocating for public utilities to provide water to everybody. They have sort of removed themselves from the argument. So it's really only the poor left to argue mm-hmm. for water. I was in a, in a um, city where there was a, the water board had gone on strike and they have been on strike for three weeks and people were, you know, the the women in the neighborhood were getting up at five o'clock in the morning to go down to the water holes down around the rivers and literally fights broke out every morning. These women who would known each other all their lives um, were stressed by standing for hours in line to get a little bit of water to, to take home to their family. People were so desperate, you know, these huge pipes that were going through town, you know, the big 30, 40 inch pipes that were carrying water, people were breaking them open with hammers just to get a handful of water. And so when the water finally came back on, there were geysers everywhere. Um, and it took months to put the, the water system back together. So we, we just don't understand how incredibly lucky we are to be able to turn on a tap and drink the water and be feel that it's reasonably safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the, the, the industri- industrial, the water industry is sort of, um, it's, it's, it's sucking the oxygen out of the room. It's making it um, less likely that the wealthy people of these communities are going to argue for whole community water systems.
8: We actually have great concerns um, in Burundi about the potential privatization of water, because you did ask what was the government doing. Mm -hmm. The proximity of Lake Tanganyika as one of the world's largest freshwater sources is actually there is concern. Will the government begin to to contemplate um, the privatization of the water? And and one current example that kind of had all of us on edge for a while was, we actually, I think, in Bujumbora, and this is only the capital city, it does not expand outwards, do drink the water from the tap in Bujumbora. It is purified. But they recently did sell the spring that the water originally came from to the company, Kinju. And it, for a while, we actually saw a rise, and this is a bit anecdotal, because the, the, the monitoring and evaluation is not the best in Burundi, but we saw a rise in typhoid and other water diseases during that time. Um, and it seems like, at least in Bujumbura, they've, they've rectified the problem of having more diseases in the water with the change of the water source, but it is a potential problem as governments will look to how are they going to fund larger solutions, and, and looking to the privatization of water as one answer. Well, and when you uh, look,
1: at, look outward from your clinic, and you're dealing with a lot of health issues, and you see a rise in something like typhoid. Mm-hmm. Um, what can you do to call attention to the to the immediate need mm-hmm. you know if you still have very limited resources but you know you've got an issue developing around you who do you go to
8: mm-hmm. Well, we try and work in as many coalitions as we possibly can. Over the years, we've also worked very hard to develop relationships with the local chiefs, with the local administrators, as well as the Ministry of Health at both the district and the national level. And so, when we begin to see concerns, we're first going to talk to our partners, and then we're going to come together and we're going to talk to the administrators, we're going to talk to the Ministry of Health, and really try and use this grassroots organizing method to try and apply pressure um, to the government, but as well as the international organizations because the way that dynamics and politics work in a development setting, oftentimes you have to, you have to do advocacy with the larger institutions as much as you do with the government because the government is so dependent on the mm-hmm. larger institutions.
1: I think this goes back to what Viraj was saying with mm-hmm. what he's seen in uh, Nepal. Um, what is your, your nearest goal, Matt?
9: Um, on the waterfront, it is that Renew, uh, renew America's Water that's um, establishing a trust fund to make sure that um, drinking water utilities have adequate funding to maintain and upgrade their their drinking water infrastructure. Um, on the food front, I mean, it was mentioned earlier about agricultural runoff. I don't mean to veer the conversation mm-hmm. that way, but um, we are, we just geared up our uh, Fair Farm Bill campaign. The Farm Bill is scheduled to be reauthorized in Congress in 2012. Um, and our food system is broken here in the United States because of previous farm bills, not benefiting family farmers, and instead benefiting corporate agribusiness. And we are pushing for a farm bill that is that makes sure that farmers get a fair price, that um, consumers have access to safe, healthy, affordable foods, and that we have diversified farms. Um, as a result, this would reduce um, the agricultural runoff. We wouldn't have as much industrialized farming operations as we do right now. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a major goal that We'll be working on here in Iowa, mm-hmm. and I would inc- I don't know how much time we have, but mm-hmm. if anybody's interested, um, visit foodandwaterwatch.org, and if you're interested in getting involved locally, um, check out the website.
1: Thank you. And what were you going to say, Cliff? Hmm? Oh, I looked as though you were getting ready to say
7: something. Well, I, I was just thinking a, a couple of things to sort of circle mm-hmm. back on some of the conversations we've had about global warming. I just wanted to share. I, I was in uh, Tanzania a couple of summers ago working with some well drilling folks there. And um, I visited a number of villages that were along the coast. And the villagers, I, I visited probably 100 wells. And the villagers, I mean, they really, we spent two days just walking around looking at dry wells. And they would say, this is the well that my great grandfather built, you know, blah, 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 back, you know, back in the early 1900s or whatever. And they're all dry hundred plus wells you know and 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 so they were going to be using our technology to try to go into the old wells and drill deeper but um, uh, it's a huge amount a huge area in which a large number of wells are just drying up and um, uh, the villagers are really looking at having to relocate their villages I was I was in Bangladesh uh, last year and uh, just for kicks Um, on the weekends. I like to go out and just visit people in the rural areas. And I'm driving around, I hired a driver, we're out in the the farmlands. And I notice it's in between planting season, and there's a bunch of people carrying dirt, just like picking up mud, carrying it uphill and dumping it. And so I stopped and I started asking some questions. And they said the floods have been terrible for the last 10 years, and it's wiping things out. So what they're doing, they're digging up their farm fields and piling it up so they can move their houses higher so their houses don't get wiped out. So these are some of the real effects of this climate change. And uh, the poorest people and people nearest the oceans are the ones who are uh, going to be facing um, the most devastation. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I am so grateful you all would come and talk about this tonight, this is terrific. And thank you to all of you for coming. Uh, Thank you, Bob Libra and Rob Quick, and, um, and the three of you, Viraj and uh, Laurie, wherever you are, Laurie, thank you so much. Um, I'm Joan Kerr. This is World Canvas. And we want to say thank you to all of you for coming. Uh, also to Stephen and David, of course, with the concert at the beginning of the show. Our next World Canvas program will be back in the Senate chamber, where we usually are. And that's on April 8th, And we'll be talking about women in post-communist Eastern Europe. I think it'll be a real interesting show. So I hope some of you can come. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you, Viraj. Good night. Thank <laughs> you.